Lord God, as we see in your word, your son, the Lord Jesus, loving his disciples, preparing his disciples for life without him, ministry in the world, help us to to learn from this as well. Help us to hear your voice in your word. Help us to understand how things have changed in light of the cross. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I've titled this message, Now and Then, Preparing for Ministry, because as we look at verses 35 through 38, Jesus makes a very clear contrast with the instructions, the manner, the method that he sent his disciples out previously on mission, and how things will change moving forward. So that's the focus here. This is the final instructions our Lord gives prior to the cross. I mean, he tells them to pray in the garden. But this is the final group instructions, his final teaching, his final preparation. They've come to the end of their three-year course with him. And he is preparing them for continued ministry, continued mission. The book of Acts will record that in many ways. And so there's a stark contrast being made. We're going to look at this in two points. Point number one, first, hospitality then. Hospitality, then. And our Lord, as I said last week, announces to them, them all, that Satan has demanded to sift them all. Again, if you have a, if you have an ESV, at least mine did, in verse 31, there's a footnote on that you. It indicates, if I could sort of use a southern version, there's Phil. No, where's, no, he's not here. Satan has demanded to sift you all, would sort of be the idea. He's telling Peter as the representative head of the group, but Satan's demand, his, his focus is on all of the twelve. He's already got one of them completely. This chapter began with Satan entering Judas. And now that Jesus is about to be crucified, now that Satan knows that the plot is in place, the plan is there, his attention now shifts to Jesus' disciples. And I think that is crucial understanding what's going on here. He's preparing them for this new attack. He's preparing them for this new shift in focus. And he contrasts the way they formerly did ministry. He says to them, when I sent you out with no money bags, knapsacks, or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, nothing. So I want you to turn back to Luke chapter 9. We're going all the way back there. Because Jesus is referencing his instructions he gave when first he sent the 12 and then he sent the 70. I want you to read it with me. Nine one, he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons to cure disease, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics, and whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart, and where you do not receive you, when you leave the town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went to the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everyone. And then another time, a chapter later, go to chapter 10. Again, similarly, Jesus sends out now the 72. Verse 1, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandal, and 
Greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter first, say peace to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you and remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. And whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you, heal the sick in it, and say to them, the kingdom of God has come to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day than for Sodom, than for that town. And jump ahead a little later to their return. Verse 17, the 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread over serpents and scorpions and over the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you, but Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So that was the way Jesus formerly sent first the 12 and then the 70 out to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of God. And what he's contrasting is how things were then to how things will be now. And so three, three hallmarks, I believe, of Jesus' initial sending of them is first is the word provision. Provision. They brought nothing with them. And where they went, things were provided for for them. The food, the shelter, presumably the extra tunics and clothing they needed. They found a very hospitable entry in Judea and in Galilee. They were, after all, disciples of a well-known, well-thought-of, famous rabbi. And part of what Jesus is doing in this is demonstrating his shepherding care. He, he's almost showing off, as it were, I'm going to send my disciples out with nothing. And they're going to be well cared for. So they have provision given to them. And so to highlight that, they're told not to bring money. They're not to bring supplies. So their former, former ministry was characterized by provision. Second, we're told explicitly by power. By power. And you see most clearly the contrast here between Satan and how Satan responded and interacted in his demons with the twelve before and what's going to go happen moving forward. They were given explicitly the power we read in chapter 9, verse um, 1. He called the twelve together, gave them power and authority over all demons. When they return, that's one of the things they're excited about in chapter 10, verse 17. Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And, And Jesus, describing the effect of their ministry, how devastating it was on Satan and his minions, says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. In other words, they were given power, and the devil and his forces couldn't stand up against it. They they walked all over them, as it were. They 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 met no real resistance, no real threat or danger. Even though Jesus says earlier that he sent them out, chapter 10, verse 3, Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Jesus' glory was the demonstration of his power that even though he sends them out defenseless, even though he sends them out like lambs in the midst of wolves, they trample the wolves. These are lambs that are walking all over the wolves. Behold, I have given you authority, verse 19, to tread on serpents and scorpions and over the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. So they had no resistance, no opposition, power, 
provision. And ultimately, this, what this culminates in is protection. That's, that's the third point here, protection. Our Lord is guarding and protecting them. He's, he says as much. In that verse we just read, Behold, I've given you authority, verse 19 of chapter 10, to tread on serpents and scorpions and over the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. The good shepherd provides for and cares for his flock. He demonstrates his power and authority by sending them out without provision, without money, without weapons. And they come back having trampled on their foes, being richly provided for, given power and our Lord's protection. That was how ministry was. And Jesus knows there's more ministry for them yet to do. The book of Acts will record them going out to the world. And it's not going to be quite like that. It's going to be a little different. And what Jesus is doing in these final moments in the upper room is preparing his disciples for life on the other side of the cross. Life in the book of Acts. Life over the coming weekend as as he is crucified and in the tomb. And so while hospitality is what characterized the world that they were doing ministry in previously, point number two, hostility now hostility now. And point A here is there is a distinct transition. Things have now changed. You see that in verse 36, but now. The Greek's even more emphatic. There's a stark contrast. This is the way things formerly were, but now. And so the question has to be asked, okay, what's changed? Why why is now different than then? And, And the text gives us, I think, two reasons for that. First, because of Satan's demand, announced in verse 31. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you all, that he might sift you like wheat. So Satan is now gunning for the apostles, and by, and by extension, the Christ church is people. And the, and the days moving forward will be days of Powerful satanic attack. Peter himself will deny our Lord three times. The book of Acts contains record of the stoning of Stephen. Church history tells us that all of the disciples, all of the apostles except John were martyred and killed. You can get a copy of Fox Book of Martyrs. There has been an attack and a, and a powerful assault against God's people. Satan has demanded to sift them. They're on his radar now. And, and Satan is powerful. Make no mistake. He is p- very powerful now. More powerful is he who is in us than he who is without. And nevertheless, this represents a very real and a very certain threat. Peter himself, I believe, having learned this lesson, writes in his own letter, First Peter, listen to this, instructions, be sober-minded, be watchful. Why? Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And the Apostle Paul recognizes in Ephesians 6, 12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces in evil in the heavenly places. So there's a real conflict going on. And it's no longer just going to be a cakewalk. It's no longer just going to be trampling underfoot every opponent. There's real danger. There's a real opponent. He is sifting God's people. The second reason for this transition is Jesus is about to leave them. And up until this point, the story has been about him. 
and he's training them, and he's equipping them, and he's teaching them, and it's about him. And even as he sends them out without money, without, without need of anything, it's to show his greatness, his power, his provision. But Jesus is going to be crucified on the cross, and he's going to ascend into heaven. In the book of Acts, the, the action's going to center around the Holy Spirit-empowered disciples spreading the message into the world. And so point number two, because of Jesus' departure. Because of Jesus' departure. Now turn, turn into John 17. We looked here briefly last week, but this is exactly the type of thing that's on Jesus' mind this evening. In John 17, we have what's referred to as Jesus' high priestly prayer. It's the same night. I don't know exactly whether this came before or after what we read. And again, he prays for himself, he prays for his disciples, and then he prays for his future disciples, namely us. And I want to uh, pick it up in verse 6, John 17. And what he's in essence saying to his father is, I've completed the job you gave me, I've done the work you gave me, but now I need to hand them over to your care because I won't be able to care for them in a little while. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And then here's his petition. I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name. So Jesus is recognizing he guarded and protected them and kept them in God's name. And now he's saying, I'm leaving, Father. You need to take over. I have kept them in your name, which you have given me. I've guarded them. Not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. But now... I am coming to you. And these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in the truth. So Jesus' imminent departure is another game changer for the disciples. His ministry of protection, his ministry of instruction and guarding and empowering is going to change. So Jesus is preparing them. This is the transition period. The transition marked by Satan's now attention on them. And Jesus' imminent departure from them, which then leads to his instructions of preparation. So from transition, point B, to preparation. They need to prepare if they will face great difficulty. If they think going forward, they're going to have a repeat of the ease with which they did ministry back in chapter 9 and 10. They've got another thing coming. He said to them, but now, let the one who has a money bag take it, 
And likewise, a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. And here, in that one verse, we've got one of the most hotly debated passages in Luke's gospel. So let's take a look at it first with the easier bit. Take a money bag and a knapsack. Now, have you ever wondered why our missionaries raise support? You ever thought to yourself, why don't they just go like Jesus sent them out in chapter 9 and chapter 10? Because we're living on the other side of the but now. In fact, one of the validations and the textual warrant for the type of, of fundraising and support that, that we're partnering with, um, with our missionaries, is found right here, that on the other side of the but now. Ministries could be difficult. It's going to require funds. And those who would go and do ministry, proclaim the kingdom of God, would do well to consider those financial issues. The early church was very much concerned by these things. The book of Acts, the earliest chapters, the Christians who come out, the thousands who become converted at Pentecost, they are apparently ostracized from their community because as a result, the early church pools its resources and its money to care for them. Widows' lists are set up because others are not being cared for. The early church was concerned with money. Financial issues mattered. It wasn't no longer just manna every day showing up, their needs. They had to plan and concern themselves of these things. Listen to Acts 4, 34 to 37. There was not a needy person among them. Why? Because the Lord just provided. For as many as were owners of lands and houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. Now you can look at that and say, that sounds wonderful, but understand The circumstances required the apostles themselves to get involved in making sure people had money. That's why they were giving it, laying at the apostles' feet, and then they were dividing it up where there was need. The implication, there was need of material sustenance and support. The apostle Paul is is supported regularly in his missionary endeavors by various churches. If you can read Philippians. So money is now a real consideration for people doing mission. And here's the warrant. Jesus, you get your money back together. Your knapsack, you're going, to need, you're going to need tools and accoutrements. Well, that's the part that no one really has issue with. It's the next phrase that gets a lot of ink on the commentaries. Let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. Now, we've got to stop here for a moment and ask ourselves, what exactly is Jesus commanding? What does this instruction mean? And I've got to admit that at this point, I'm going to deviate from virtually every single commentary I haven't read on this issue. I've got one, Alfred's, that I think is right on. Um, And that's always a a careful thing to do. But most of the commentaries I've read, but most of the people, if you've got a MacArthur Study Bible, his notes are going to say, um, by the way, if you have an ESV Study Bible, they do a great job of presenting both sides of the issue. You could read those notes sometime. Um, is that Jesus surely is not speaking of a literal sword here. And, and the, this must be some sort of metaphorical sword or a call to preparation, a call to gear themselves up. And, and the reasons why they argue this is because the book of Acts doesn't really show pictures of Christians fighting anybody with swords. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, talked about turning the cheek, not resisting an evil man. And a little later in this own chapter, does not our Lord rebuke Peter for cutting off the high priest's servant's ear? And so that reading has Jesus saying something to the effect of, um, you're going to need to really buckle up and get ready for challenging times. Something, something like that. I think that that reading fails on a number of points. Um, 
The first is, if you're going to spiritualize the sword or make the sword a metaphor, you pretty much go through the same thing with the money bag and the knapsack. I don't see how when you've got a list of three things. Two of them are the things they represent, and the third is a metaphor. Secondly, I'm not even sure what a metaphorical sword is and how you buy one. How do you sell, do you sell a metaphorical cloak or a literal cloak to buy the metaphorical sword? Where do you buy the metaphorical sword? But probably most striking is Jesus' disciples, the people in the room with him, understood him to be speaking of a sword. Look at verse 39 and 38. Uh, the 38. They said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And Jesus said, it is enough. And what makes this even trickier is some of the translations, um, and specifically the NIV, um, although the ESV is going to mess something up in a minute too, so there's blamed all the way to go around, translate the phrase, it is enough, which that's literally a literal translation, it is sufficient with that's enough. And they want to take it as though what Jesus is saying in response to them pointing out swords is, stop, stop talking about swords. You, don't, you aren't even getting it. The problem is, and the Greek doesn't back that up. When they point out the swords to Jesus and he says it is enough, it literally means that is a sufficient amount. There's no indication anywhere that I can find in the, in the Greek New Testament this is some sort of backhanded insult. This is some sort of rebuke. It's the exact same phrase, in fact, without the negative, that is spoken by John the Baptist. I am not worthy to untie. I am not sufficient. I am not enough to untie Jesus' sandal. Or the centurion who sent the delegation of Jesus, Lord, do not trouble yourself. I am not worthy. It's the same phrase in the positive sense to mean a number of days. The Apostle Paul spent enough days at a place. And he said he spent a number of days there. No indication I can find that when Jesus says it is enough, it is sufficient, it means anything other than approval of what they have. So if that's the case, then they understand Jesus to be speaking of a literal sword. They point to literal swords, and Jesus gives approval. That'll do, in other words. I think that's the right reading of it. Now, what makes this further more difficult is if you jump ahead to what we'll be looking at next week, or the week after next, I'm sorry, is in the conflict where Peter, Luke doesn't tell us it's Peter, but where one of the disciples draws his sword, if you look down at verse 49 of 23, and when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. But Jesus said, and here's the ESV, I don't know why they translate it this way, no more of this. It's literally in the Greek, permit this, let this be. That's the way the New King James renders it, permit even this, Young's little translation, suffer you this far, and what's happening is the translators are bringing in what they think is going on here. And so clearly a number of people think these are metaphorical swords, whatever that means. Therefore, Jesus must be saying some sort of rebuke in verse 38 when he says it is enough. And certainly here they would see him as saying some sort of rebuke. But a straight translation of the passage is pretty straightforward. He talks about swords. They point to swords. He says that'll do. And then what's going on in the garden is, is permit this, allow this, this must be, this, this has to happen. In fact, in Matthew, he tells Peter to put his sword back in its scabbard, not to throw it away from him. So, for those reasons, that's my, my argument. We could talk more later. We won't have an ABF to discuss this in, but we could talk about it perhaps next week, but I'm going to move on for the sake of time now. That I, I fully believe these are real swords he's talking about. Um... Because it's real cloaks, it's real knapsacks, it's real money bags he's talking about because they understood it as real swords. So then what do I think this means? 
Um, and some, on the other side, have taken this as a Christian command. This is why Christians need to own guns. I've, I've seen that argued before. Every, every, I've, I don't believe this, but I've seen people argue that Jesus' command here means that you need to have the state-of-the-art, up-to-date weaponry of the day. In their day, it was a sword. In our day, it might be you know, a rifle or a handgun. And here's Jesus saying, hey, do what you've got to do. Sell your clothing if you have to. Get a gun. I don't think so either. So what does he mean? First, sell your cloak, buy a sword, not to form a militia. Not to form a militia. Look down again at verse 38. There's at least 11 men. Judas probably has left by now. We don't know. Luke doesn't tell us when he leaves. And these 11 men have between them two swords. By the way, notice they had them with them, which means Jesus hadn't forbidden his disciples from carrying swords. Two of them have swords. And Jesus says, that'll do. That's enough. That's a pretty poorly armed militia where 11 guys are sharing two swords. Fair enough? This isn't about a military assault. This isn't about forming an armed revolution or uprising. I think when you put it together with the context of when he sent them out before, he sent them out across the country on road trips to towns. Now they're going to need to bring a purse of money. Now they're going to need to bring a change of clothes and a knapsack. Now they need to bring a sword. I think what he's talking about is reasonable travel measures. Reasonable travel measures. I think that's probably why two of them had swords. Remember, they've just traveled from Galilee all the way up to Jerusalem. And we know that those trips can be dangerous. Remember the story of the Good Samaritan? What happened? The man was coming down the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he's hit by bandits. And wild animals are an issue. And so I think what Jesus is saying is that in ministry moving forward, they are to take Prudent financial measures, consider those things. Preparedness there. They're to take preparedness in regards to the things they have, their clothing. And it's viable and legitimate and to consider some form of defense or safety. I mean, Christians, after all, lock their doors, or at least I do. So it's neither a, it's neither a warrant for, for aggression, but Christians are not, I believe, strictly forbidden from defending others or themselves. And that is how the church has understood Christ's ethic through the ages. Yes, we're to, we're to turn aside from personal offense. If someone wants to slap me, that's one thing. But if someone wants to attack somebody else in my presence, that's another. And so reasonable travel measures for protection and safety. That's, that's what they're going to need to do. That's what I think is going on here. So he says, look, make sure you bring some money if you got it. Make sure you bring some extra clothing. The Apostle Paul made tents when he was doing ministry. And the Apostle Paul took measures to, to get out of trouble his way. Remember, they led him down the wall in a basket so he could avoid being stoned to death by a mob. So the transition brings about a call for preparation and now an explanation, an explanation. Verse 37, For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors for what is written about me has its fulfillment. Here's a further reason why things have changed, why they're going to have to take this new posture. Notice, by the way, the specificity. I love this. Um, Jesus clearly, emphatically understands that Isaiah 53, which is what he's citing, Isaiah 53, 12. In fact, you can turn there. Turn to Isaiah 53. Um, is about him. It's not just the scripture needs to be fulfilled. The scripture needs to be fulfilled in me for what is written about me has its fulfillment. 
That's, that's emphatic. Jesus understands that Isaiah 53 is about him. And I think what he's saying is all of it, all of Isaiah 53, I think one of the reasons he quotes verse 12 is this is the end of the chapter. All of it's got to come true in him. He's saying, and in verse 12, we read, therefore I will divide with him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. What's going on? I think it's this. Further reason to explain the transition of mood in the environment of ministry is that Jesus, part of his fulfillment of Isaiah 53, is not just that he will die for the sins of his people. And that's, that's the substitutionary atonement that we talk about. Jesus didn't die on the cross as a moral example. He didn't die on the cross to show what love can do. He died on the cross for the sins of his people. Verse 4, surely he has borne our griefs carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now there's the glorious truth of the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. Moreover, on top of God placing our sins upon him, an additional aspect of this prophecy is that he would be numbered with the transgressors. Jesus would be charged as a criminal. Now he is wildly popular at this point in time. We've seen that in Luke. The crowds are hanging on his words. They're getting up from from dawn till dusk to hear his teaching. But that will change. He will be numbered with the transgressors. He will be crucified as a common criminal. Consequently, the second point here, that means Jesus and his disciples will be despised. This is more, more reasoning for why things are going to change. The disciples after the cross are, will no longer be the, the disciples of a well-known, well-thought-of, popular Jewish rabbi. Rather, they're going to be the gang of that criminal who is put to death. At least that's what many will think of them. And so Jesus tells them, look, everything written about me in Isaiah 53 must find its fulfillment in me. All of it. Every detail. And you can go through Isaiah 53 and see the details from where he was laid in a tomb to his, yeah, it's, it's, it's incredibly specific. But one of the details in Isaiah 53 is he's going to be called a criminal. And consequently, that's going to shift the mood. They're going to try to arrest him as one. In just a few verses. Jesus and his disciples will be despised. Which then brings us to the the response, the application, the disciples' response. We have transition, preparation, explanation, application. Disciples have heard what must be shocking news to them. Satan is gunning for them. Their leader, Peter, is going to fall. Remember, Jesus assumes that. I've prayed for you, and when you've returned, strengthen your brothers. But... Jesus now changes their marching orders moving forward. They're to prepare for hostility, prepare for opposition and persecution. They're to plan. And so the disciples say, Lord, look, here are two swords. They got them with them, as I said, probably because they've been carrying the wind with them from their journey up to Jerusalem for the Passover. And Jesus' response, it is enough. 
This, this is the closing of the, the Last Supper in Luke's account. It, that'll do. It is enough. It is enough. So what do we get from this? We should not be surprised when doing ministry this side of the cross is difficult. We should not be surprised that even though God empowers his people, the disciples are going to get more power, aren't they? Jesus is going to tell them after the resurrection, wait, linger in Jerusalem until you receive power. So God is a response to Satan's attack, but it is different. It's not a cakewalk. I'm sure we're going to hear this morning about the challenges of ministry and mission. We heard last week about the difficulties. It's hard, and it takes planning, and you can't just sort of waltz out there. God will provide. He'll take care of me. That's not Jesus' instructions here for them. We should not be surprised when the world hates us. We should not be surprised when we read that opposition. Jesus even told his disciples in Luke 6.40, a disciple is not above his teacher. If they treated Jesus as a man who deserved to die as a criminal, how will they treat his followers? Again, as the culture begins to turn on us, even this country, it should not surprise us. The surprise was that Christians could be well thought of for the last few hundred years. We're more returning to the norm. And we need to prepare. And we need to face that reality. But we also need to know that our Savior cares for us. He's, he's in his last moments before the trial and the crucifixion. He is focused on equipping, preparing his disciples to carry on his ministry, to preach the gospel to the nations. That's where his heart is, and that's where our heart needs to be as well. I'm going to close with a word of prayer as we transition to a time of communion. Lord God, um, what a great Savior we have. He's not thinking about himself. He's not thinking about his needs, but to the very last, he, he loved his disciples to the end. And he showed us what love looks like as he shepherds them, prepares them, equips them, and ultimately sends them out into the world. And so, Lord, we, we pray that we would hear this as well, that we would understand there is a real enemy opposing us. There's a real devil at work seeking to devour us. That we would be thoughtful on how we spend our money, how we organize it for your kingdom purposes, how we engage with the world. Lord, give us strength in that fray. Give us courage not to be sifted out as chaff, but that we would survive as wheat that you would cause us to stand, um, not by our own strength, but by the strength that you supply. Lord God, um, how marvelous is it that our Savior, as he prepares to hang on the cross for us, is still loving, is still shepherding, is still preparing. In Jesus' name, amen.